Shalom, shalom, holy friends. Thank you for being here. We're thrilled to be with Rabbi Jason Herman today, who serves as the Mara de Atra spiritual leader of the Hudson Yard Synagogue, also known as Congregation Beth Israel Westside Jewish Center in New York City. You have to visit this great shul. I once or twice, I don't remember, had the chance to take over on Shabbat with some sermons and the like. Uh, about 15 years ago and got to experience the amazing members. But really, Rabbi Herman is the soul of the place, who also serves as the executive director of the International Rabbinic Fellowship, the IRF, a professional organization of over 250 Orthodox rabbis, clergy, and spiritual leaders across the U.S. and across the world, around the world. He's also the founder and president of the Israel Academic Institute, an organization seeking to promote Israeli academia in the U.S. I had no idea. Rabbi Herman has held a number of leadership positions including serving as, a, serving as an officer of the New York Board of Rabbis, where he leads its Jewish Muslim dialogue group. Rabbi Herman has lectured at synagogues and campuses in both the U.S. and Israel. He's been an advocate for Jewish and social justice causes and has advised and been involved with several Jewish organizations, including APAC, the American Jewish Committee, JOFA, and others. He's also a former fellow at Rabbis Without Borders. Rabbi Herman received a smicha rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva Chovavei Torah and is an alumnus of the Huntsman program at the University of Pennsylvania, from which he received a BS in economics and a BA in international studies. He's also a former investment banker. Rev. Jason, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So it's a, it's a pleasure. So I wanted to share with everyone probably sort of a different model, uh, which is the I titled it The Role That Negotiation Can Play in Achieving Social Justice Aims. And I wanted to look sort of as an example uh, at the role of debt, uh, particularly in the Torah. If you were just read the Torah straight through, you would notice the Torah has very strong views about protecting particularly borrowers from being literally crushed under a mountain of debt. Uh, it does not want people to take advantage of people who might be hard strapped for cash and looking for money. And if they happen to borrow, how the Torah is going to protect them. So the Torah actually has different means by which it protects borrowers. Two of them are very well known. Uh, the third is actually sort of interpreted by Chazal uh, to understand, but we'll look at all three and then see what happens with them. So the first is uh, obviously the most well-known is the prohibition for collecting ribit, which is interest. You're not allowed to lend somebody money on interest. The second, slightly less well-known, but still pretty well-known, is the notion that during the year of Shemitah, the sabbatical year, once every seven years, all debts are canceled. So if you are accumulating debt over a period of time, you get to year seven, and then everything, you can look at uh, the Book of Dvarim, tells us that those debts are canceled. That's the second protection that the Torah gives us uh, for borrowers. The third is not as explicit in the Torah, but the rabbis seem to understand it, is that if a lender wants to collect money from a borrower, has to go to a beit into a Jewish court, but can't just go to any beitin. Normally, you know, in our practice, often a beitin is you just grab three people who are qualified to be a judge, you put them together as a panel. But the Talmud's understanding, and it uh, reads into the psukim to get this, is that when it comes to the collection of a debt, you have to not just go to three judges, but they have to be three experts. Furthermore, they have to be three experts who are located 
in Eretz Yisrael. You know, so imagine if I'm sitting here in New York and I lend somebody money and that person's not paying. To in order to collect from the Torah's perspective, I would actually have to make the effort to go all the way to Israel, bring that person to a Beit Din in Israel, and I would maybe even have to pay that person's travel expenses in order to collect my debt. Those are the three protections that the Torah gives, and it's, I think, sends a very clear message that the Torah wants to protect borrowers. But what happens when you get to the Talmud? Let's look at those three. With respect to ribit and the collection of interest, we are famously presented what later be known, the Talmud actually doesn't use the phrase, the heter iska, uh, that comes up in you know, later Middle Ages and actually later uh, times, which is this permission for how a person can lend on interest, which by transforming the sort of the transaction into a business transaction where the lender is, so to speak, investing in the borrower's business, then we allow that the lender, I'll just give you the quick summary of a heteriska, is the lender effectively invests in the borrower's business, which would entitle the lender to a share of the borrower's profits for what they're doing with that money. But because doing a full accounting of all of the profits and losses is cumbersome, the now investor who's taking the place of the lender agrees to take a fixed sum of money in lieu of the profits that they would have been owed. And that fixed sum of money includes some added percentage return on what they invested in the borrower's business, which effectively gets you around the prohibition for collecting interest because it's in lieu of profits that the investor would have been owed. And therefore the prohibition for collecting interest has sort of fallen by the wayside. When it comes to the notion of Shemitah, which is every seven years the debt is canceled, uh, we just did it this uh, past year before Rosh Hashanah. Hillel famously gives us the Prusbol. The Prusbol is a document that anybody who has lent money can fill out, and they transfer any debts that are owed to them to a Beit Din, to a Jewish court. And the Beit Din can therefore, after Shemitah, Beit Din's money owed to Beit Din is not canceled by Shemitah. And therefore, since the money is now out to Beitin, Beitin can now collect it on behalf of the lender, even despite of, even in spite of Shemitah. Uh, and it, yeah, so Shemitah doesn't cancel the debt anymore, the lender can still collect. And finally, with the third protection that's given, which is this notion that you have to go to a court of mumchim of experts, and that they have to be located in Eretz Yisrael, uh, in the Gemara and Bavakama, uh, Tractate Bavakama, the rabbis who were in Babylonia made a very bold statement. They say that we are the representatives of these rabbis in Israel. And therefore, since we're representing them, we can constitute a Beit Din that has the ability to collect debts because we're not, even if we're not necessarily technically experts, even if we're not located in Israel, we serve as their representatives. Now, to be quote unquote an expert literally meant you have to have smicha, which is ordination, but not the ordination that we typically have today. It had to be a direct chain from Moshe Rabbeinu and had to be given in 
the land of Israel itself. Getting smicha outside of Israel was not traditional smicha, wouldn't count. At some point, that chain was broken. Uh, even the Rambam gives you ways to sort of reconstitute it, but for most of history, we assume that that chain was broken. So even if we're not in Israel, um, there's no experts in Israel anymore who technically have this expertise, you know, having this smicha. So what do we do today? Tosafot, the rabbinic commentators in the early Middle Ages from about 1100 to 1300 in France, made an even bolder statement than the rabbis of the Talmud in Babylonia. They say not only were the rabbis in Babylonia, said we are the representatives of the rabbis in Israel and therefore can act on their behalf. Tosavot says we are the representative of the previous generations. So even if there's no one who technically has that expertise now, we can represent the generations that came before us and even collect the debt at that point would have been in France and you know parts of Germany in the early Middle Ages. So it seems, you know, from these actions, you know, in the Talmud and then, you know, into the, we call the Rishonim, the early part of the commentators, every single protection that the Torah has provided to a borrower seems to go away. We've gotten rid of the prohibition on interest, you know, through the, through the mechanism of the Heteriska. We've gotten rid of the cancellation of the debt through Shemitah, which is, you know, through Hillel's Prusbol, and even this requirement of having a special court that could look at, we just allowed any court to go in and collect the debt on behalf of a lender anywhere in the world and anywhere in history. So it raises this, you know, big question, if the Torah is so concerned about this, you know, how do the rabbis just completely move aside a value that the Torah has and that the Torah actually has in multiple places. This is not even something that comes up once. And how does the Talmud understand itself as to what it's doing, as to why they would just abrogate uh, a major justice value of what is, you know, the Torah considered speed tzedek and righteousness. And the rabbis just seem to move it aside. You know, how do we understand that? Uh, and how do they understand what they're doing? So the first is, first of all, why would they do it? Uh, and then we'll come to the notion of how they do it. And, you know, how does the Torah's value sort of find its way back into this process? So the rabbis tell us actually, you know, kind of throughout the Talmud, why they do stuff like this, particularly in the case of lending and debt. There is an expression that keeps coming up throughout the Talmud, which says as follows, it says, Shalotino delet not to lock a door before borrowers. The rabbis seem to be concerned that if you followed the Torah to the letter of the law as written in the Torah, no one would ever lend money. They would literally be locking the door before lending, such as if I can't lend money on interest, why would I lend somebody money? I lend money because maybe I'm going to get something back in return. Now, maybe you want to help out a friend to be, you know, all great and altruistic, and that's a great thing, but not everyone's willing to do that. And most people who lend money or invest money do it because they're going to get some kind of interest back. You put money in a bank account because the bank's paying you interest. And ideally, you don't want it sitting in a check account, checking account that doesn't earn interest. You'd rather have it in the savings account or you'd rather have it someplace where it's going to earn more interest. And if I'm going to give somebody money as a loan, and maybe as a friend is a nice thing to do, I might do it, but I'm probably going to give far less and you don't get the amount that's lent without interest. Furthermore, 
probably even worse than the notion of just you know lending money and interest. If I know that for some reason it's going to take somebody until the next Shemitah perhaps to pay me back, and then suddenly after Shemitah they're not going to pay me back, I'm going to maybe lend the money, but it would certainly be far less. I'm not going to risk my money if I can't collect it back, and I'm just not going to lend it. And, you know, furthermore, if it's going to be too hard to get it back, if I have to like travel all the way to Israel just to, you know, to get somebody to repay me, I'm not going to go through that hassle. So what I'd rather do, I'd just rather not lend at all. So the rabbis were concerned about this. And as I said, they repeat that expression numerous times. And not to lock the door before lending. Because the rabbis understood that for the basic economic function of society is that sometimes somebody's going to make money down the future and they need money now. And, you know, rather than just, you know, subsisting entirely in stock, because sometimes it actually is helpful to borrow some money, pay it back later. And if people aren't willing to lend, it's not going to happen. So they needed to make some type of changes uh, to perhaps even what the Torah prescribes in order that there would even be lending in the first place, that this concept of lending would still be happening. So now we come back to the question, okay, that's why they did it, but then what happens to the Torah's value? How do you protect a borrower from coming under this crushing mountain of debt and what's going to happen there? The Torah clearly wants to protect the borrower. The Torah thinks that there's a real injustice to somebody who might, you know, be desperate and keeps borrowing money and then suddenly is in a situation where they can't repay it, can never get out of that hole. So how does that happen? And how did the rabbis understand? It's like, okay, we're protecting this notion that keep lending happening. So we've sort of, you know, maybe rebalanced the equation a little bit to the side of the lender. But what happens to the borrower? The Torah is very concerned about the borrower. If you look at the, the you know, everything about lending in the Torah, the Torah is almost entirely on the side of the borrower. It's very little, uh, you know, we can even mention other things from this week's Parsha, the notion of actually, if you take collateral, uh, it's actually this week's Parsha, in Parsha Mishpatim, you take, a, you know, a shirt from a person as collateral, and that's the only shirt the person has, you have to give it back to him, you know, during the day, or if it's a night shirt at night, because otherwise it says, what else is he going to wear? And the person could cry out. So the Torah is, you know, so much more on the side of the borrower. The rabbis do a little rebalancing, but how do they understand that? So let's look at the things that we are three examples again. And you'll actually see is even though the rabbis are doing a little rebalancing, there's something that's just very subtly in there. When it comes, I will go a little out of order, uh, but this will help. When it comes to Shemitah, the seven-year cycle where every seven years the debts are going to be canceled. It doesn't just say we have this concept called the Prusbol and it just gets rid of Shemitah. What does it do? It transfers the debt to the Beitin because Beitin's, are, Beitin's debts are not canceled and the Beitin can continue to collect the debts on behalf of that person. But you know what else? Beitin can also step in and look at the situation. Beitin can say, hey, this person has a lot of debt. They'll never be able to repay it. And we as the Beitin are going to choose not to collect in this case. Maybe we'll figure out something or maybe the Beitin will say, hey, this person's got too much debt. The lender needs to get something back. Maybe we'll rewrite the terms of the loan 
that either they pay back over a longer period of time. Maybe Baiton says, we're going to only take half the loan back. And Baiton can look at the situation and completely readjust. And they have the full authority to do that. Why? Because the Prusball has turned the loan from the lender over to the Baiton. It allows a court to come in and look at the situation and make adjustments as necessary. So it's not an automatic that Prusball gets rid of Shemitah. Prusbol doesn't get rid of Shemitah where you fill out a Prusbol and suddenly you can go collect your loan. Is what a Prusbol does is it allows a bait in to step in on your behalf so that maybe, yeah, you still have the incentive to lend because you're going to get paid back. But it also allows a third party intermediary court to come in and perhaps work on behalf of the borrower. That understanding, let's go to the heteriska which gets rid of the concept of interest. So the heteriska, I think, does two things. It doesn't just suddenly allow somebody to take interest. It's reframing the relationship. A person who just lends money and interest, it's a very simple relationship. I give you money and I expect a certain amount of return. And who are you to me in this relationship? You're just somebody who is providing me with additional cash in the form of the interest on the money I lent you. I have no stake in how well you do, how successful you are. All I care about is do I get my money back and particularly do I profit off you? Which neither the rabbis nor the the Torah is very much concerned about. But when they frame it as I'm invested in your business and I'm just taking this fixed amount, which the heteriska does in lieu of profits, then what that's saying is I'm actually personally invested in your success. I've built this relationship through the heteriska, where I'm not just, you're not just some tool so that I can profit off of, you're somebody that I want to see be successful. Go into a little further into the Middle Ages. So, you know, nowadays, you know, people just fill out a heteriska form, we think it's okay. But let's keep in mind what we just said about the Prusbol. And it's a very interesting chiddish in concept. The Truma Dedeshin is writing in the 15th century. Although some say he made up questions in order to answer it, but the Truman Adeshin actually asks a question if someone wanted to lend a certain amount of money and interest, how could they do it halachically? And he expands on the concept of the heteriska as it's been developed to that point. But the Truman Adeshin adds a fascinating notion to the heteriska. It says that the parties of the heteriska are in fact required to show up at a Beitin once a month, he says in order to kind of go through the financials a little bit, even if not in full detail to say what the now investor would be making, you know, but how much perhaps they would be entitled to in order that there is a bait in looking at this and somebody is able to say, you know, is there really investment going on? And if the borrower perhaps, you know, in the course of a business lost money and still owes it back, you know, the court can step in and say, you know, maybe here's how you do it better. Here's how you, you know, protect it. And it's not just this uh, relationship that doesn't have, you know, any type of involvement where I give you money, you give me something in return. But there's this notion that the parties come together and particularly in the role of a baited that can, so to speak, negotiate uh, between them. Uh, and then obviously our last case, which is this notion of a modern baited, even if it's not notion in Israel, is representing some baited either in the past, but in Eretz Yisrael, is that we're seeing ourselves in that role of people who have expertise, 
uh, but people who have expertise in a baitin that can step into a lending relationship and figure out what the right balance is between the sides. So when you look at that, it's not that the rabbis are just suddenly getting rid of the tourist protection of borrowers in order so that lending can continue, is they're very much empowering a baitin to come into play here so that there can be some type of negotiation between the sides. We have to have the right balance between protecting a borrower so that they do not come under this crushing mountain of debt that they're unable to repay and that they're really hurting and suffering versus still wanting people to have the incentive to keep lending and yet figuring out the right balance between them. And the right balance between them isn't necessarily so obvious. There's no hard and fast rules that you can write there. And that's why the rabbis don't write them. But rather what they do is they create situations where a third party or others can step into the situation, look at every case in its own individual circumstance, and figure out in this particular case, how do I protect the borrower? How do I protect the lender? And what is the right balance? And what is the right relationship uh, in each uh, particular lending you know, scenario? Uh, so that was uh, sort of the, I guess, the first half of what I wanted to present. Uh, and then to look at this case is perhaps that it, it you know, applies to other you know, social justice concerns that the Torah has uh, as well, is that often you know, the Torah will present us with, uh, and I'll give a second example in you know, just a few minutes, the Torah presents us with real key values of justice and what makes a just society, uh, very much in this week's Parsha as well, and how we you know, go about achieving that. Uh, but oftentimes, once you get into, you know, particularly Chazal and Atamba, they realize that a lot of times that those values uh, sometimes run against realities and other interests uh, that people will sometimes fight against. And they figure out how do we necessarily negotiate uh, those other interests uh, so that we can still achieve the Torah's value. Uh, so just give just, you know, one other, you know, interesting example off the um, that can come into play here. The mitzvah of peya. The mitzvah of peya is that you have to leave a corner of your fields, uh, which actually the Torah doesn't even give you a minimum size, the rabbis do, however, that the poor can come and collect. And it sounds like a great thing. Okay, everyone, you know, some owner of a field has this, the poor can come and collect their tzedakah. And this is actually not even explicit in the Mishnah, but you have to kind of wonder what prompted this Mishnah. The Mishnah comes to say that the poor are only allowed to collect from the corner of the field that belongs to them at certain key intervals of the day. Three intervals, particularly, that they lay out. They said the poor can come at this time, this time, and this time. So you have to sort of, you know, maybe ask the question, what prompted the mission to even, you know, regulate this? If this corner of the field belongs to the poor, they're part of the field, why should it matter when they come? You know, let them come whenever. So perhaps you can imagine that whoever owned the field just, you know, felt there was invasion of their privacy, that they would, you know, go out in their backyard and there would be people there at all hours of the day, you know, collecting and, uh, you know, just this constant interruption. And it meant that perhaps uh, some owners of the field would just, you know, avoid doing the mitzvah peah altogether, if that's what it meant. So the rabbis, in order to protect the mitzvah peah, said, we're going to create certain intervals so that you'll still be willing to do it, 
And we can say to the owner, hey, you know what? We'll still respect your privacy a little bit and we'll put that at you know, a little bit of a restriction and balance the owner's interest in not having people come at all hours of the day and the Torah's interest that the poor still be provided with a pay with a corner of the field and how we strike that right balance. Um, and looking you know, between balancing those type of interests. So what I wanted to look is, I think, is the concept of negotiation. Um, you know, I think too often, uh, particularly in more recent days, and particularly not just social justice activists, but activists, you know, general, uh, in recent decades, and this was not always the case in the past, uh, seem to have not only shy away from negotiation, but sometimes talk about negotiation as a means of change has gotten a bit of a bad rap. Uh, it's seen as compromising uh, on values. Uh, you know, and there are people when they talk about, uh, you know, theories of change and uh, philosophies of change and how one makes changes, then negotiation is often seen as compromise. And they sometimes describe it in these, you know, very nefarious terms, like people went into some back room, you know, hidden, hidden you know, hidden behind everyone's eyes with lack of transparency and sold out their values. And in our activism, whatever it's going to be, we're going to always be out in public and out in the street and never negotiate uh, and, you know, sell out our values in some back room. Uh, but often you can actually accomplish uh, quite a bit. And I'll, you know, share some, you know, just a little bit of stories. I remember Rav Shmuley with us in like the early days of early Tzedek as an organization. Uh, where negotiation is not just something that happens in the back room, but is something that actually can further advance your goals and your justice values. Uh, so, you know, just to give that example, and I want to, you know, share that story because we can take something that happened in, wasn't exactly a back room, it's actually in a public restaurant, um, and, you know, show how perhaps it could uh, advance, you know, such social justice uh, goal. And it's, I think, worth recounting a little bit of history. But I remember the very early days of Uri Litzedek, uh, you know, came about in the, you know, response to the really serious abuses that was happening in the Rubashkin um, plant. And uh, Uri Litzedek organized a boycott of Rubashkin meat because of the abuses that was happening uh, there. Uh, I was already having you know, been in yeshiva with Rav Shmuley and Rav Ari Hart uh, in those early days, but was already in my shul. And they asked me, I remember, for a quote that could be used in the Jewish week, uh, you know, from someone who was already in a shul. So I provided a quote, it was in there. And Rubashkin reached out to us because they it was in their interest to end a boycott. And they wanted to have a meeting. So I remember Rav Shmuley and Rav Ari, you know, called me since I was quoted in the paper and Rubashkin sort of asked to meet with me too. Could I come to the meeting? And we went to this meeting and they were actually, by the way, very smart in that they took us to a dairy restaurant, uh, you know, for a, you know, meat provider. This way we knew we would not be eating their meat. Uh, of course, Rishmali's vegan and wouldn't have eaten anyway, but, uh, you know, we wouldn't have to even, you know, wonder about what the particular restaurant they took us to. Um, no, it wasn't milk and honey. If, uh, I'm trying to remember it was... Um, I don't remember where it was. It was on uh, 45th Street in Manhattan, but I don't remember the, uh, I have to remember the restaurant. And we went to this restaurant and we sat there with representatives of Rubashkin, who, by the way, often we did not trust at all. Uh, and it was trying to figure out 
how we can move forward. You know, they wanted Uri Litzedek to end a boycott. We wanted to make sure that the abuses in the Rubashkin factory were no longer occurring. And figuring out how to balance, you know, their interests and ours um, was actually a conversation. Uh, it was a negotiation. I can tell you, you know, sort of what happened is, you know, we wanted verification. It was, I think, one of the big issues. Like, how could we go into this factory and make sure that the serious abuses that had been occurring, they were no longer occurring? But we had a problem because Uri Litzedek was a new organization. We couldn't just send somebody to Iowa where the factory was. And, you know, first of all, who would we send? Who would we send that we trusted? How would, um, you know, how would, and even, you know, even if we send someone, how do we know that they're not hiding something from that person? How would that person, you know, get access? How would that person even know what they're looking for? You know, assuming you could find, you know, the right uh, person. Uh, so one of the things that, you know, came up, because we know that Rubashkin was also being obviously invested, you know, criminally at that time, is it had been in the paper just before that Rubashkin hired a compliance officer. Compliance officer is a lawyer that you hire in order to make sure that you're, if you've not been following the law, to make sure that you are following the law, that you don't get into trouble, you know, in the future and how you put things in place to make sure you're following the law. Often compliance officers are lawyers. Uh, and if you hire somebody from the outside, it's often because the assumption is you haven't been following the law, that an attorney who's trying to get you to follow the law uh, is usually protected by attorney-client privilege. So the attorney doesn't, in fact, is prohibited from saying anything that they know about. We asked Rubashkin, I think this was an you know, important part of the story, would they waive that attorney-client privilege with their compliance officer? And he could tell us what it is that he found that was going on wrong and what steps he was taking in order to correct it. So even though it was somebody that they hired, his sole job was as an attorney. Uh, and honest, um, you know, at least he's accountable to the Bar Association as an attorney for, you know, maintaining a certain series of ethics uh, and could literally report, this is what this is what I found. This is how I'm correcting it. And even though he would normally under legal ethics, not only not be obligated to share that information with anyone, he would actually normally be prohibited from sharing that information. But if Rubashkin were to waive it, then he's allowed to share that information. And then we as the consumers who are kosher consumers who want to make sure that the meat provided to us is under ethical conduct can get access to information that we would not have normally had access to. Uh, surprisingly, I was actually a little surprised that they did it, but Rubashkin actually agreed. Uh, and, you know, for a time, I mean, their criminal cases obviously went the way that it went and it's a whole different part of the story, but their compliance officer, who I don't remember his name, but was a attorney in Chicago who was, you know, brought in, uh, you know, for this, was actually very forthcoming uh, with, for the, particularly was reporting to Ravari uh, on this. And it got us information about how things in Rubashkin were being fixed uh, and going forward. Uh, so I think that's an example of actually where a negotiation, you know, from that meeting was not just some compromise in some back room, but was something that actually really advanced the social justice goals uh, that we had, that just the notion of when you're willing to sit down and talk to somebody, hear what their concerns are, hear what their interests are, then you can actually balance and bring that in. So to bring this back to the cases of debt uh, that we had you know, in the Torah is 
when a baitin comes in, either in the case of a heteriska ribis or baitin comes in and you act on behalf of a cruise ball, they're not compromising on the Torah's values, but they're actually making sure that the Torah's values are really achieved in spite of or in light of competing interests that might happen. The rabbis understood if you just insist and you know, fight for the Torah's values as a zero-sum game, that you know, it's either this or nothing, then what would happen is the people wouldn't lend at all. If you know, that was, uh, was Shalotin Odelep if they halavin. But if you use negotiation as a tactic, and here it's an arbitration, the Beitin's doing the negotiation on that behalf, then you can achieve the Torah's goal, and the Torah has a voice in that room in the form of Beitin. You can achieve the Torah's goal of protecting the borrower and negotiate with the lender in order that the lender's interests are still uh, taken under consideration, and in a way that still keeps lending happening, that this concept of loans still exists, the borrower is protected, the lender's protected, and the negotiation leads uh, not to a compromise of the Torah's values, but actually a realization of the Torah's values uh, and advances the cause forward. Uh, so I'm happy to uh, you know, take questions or talk about other examples, uh, and if we were in a smaller group as opposed to a podcast, there are actually some good negotiation exercises <laughs> might have tried uh, that can you know, really show where negotiation actually can be a real positive uh, in advancing one's uh, goals. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. So if somebody said to you, Jason, I don't know, like religion and politics are separate spheres and religion is about ideals. It's about principles. Right. As Ravavi says, it's about doing what's right rather than what's popular. Right. Whereas politics is muddy. Politics is about trading votes, about non-ideals. It's about getting stuff done. Like, how would you respond to that kind of separation? Right. So I think actually, and this is where it, uh, you know, I'll give you some you know, principles. And I actually I wrote an article about this. You can look up in the Lairhouse. Uh, I think the first principle you need to understand is that the, the Torah is a political document. Uh, it's a political document in the sense that the Torah has a vision for society and how society should be governed, what the rules we should be, live by. This is not something that just, you know, is in our own inner spiritual lives. The Torah has real views, real beliefs in what should be happening out there in the world. Uh, and, you know, if anyone just doesn't you know, think Torah is about politics, um, I think probably hasn't read it. Um, that's, you know, the first, I think, key principle in that. The second, and this is where I think people often get it wrong, the Torah is neither a conservative nor a liberal document. The Torah has certain liberal values, uh, you know, among which we were speaking about uh, today, just the protection of a borrower is a liberal value. But the Torah has also conservative values. There are certain, you know, aspects of that would probably be that resonate very much in conservative with uh, in the Torah with conservative, you know, mindset. Uh, and I'll give you another example. The Torah is very comfortable and, in fact, requires the death penalty. Now, there's a case where Chazal step in on the other side, whereas Chazal went in to protect the lender against borrowing. Here, the Chazal step in often to limit the death penalty uh, quite significantly which is, you know, worth talking about. But if you were just to read the Torah itself, that's a conservative value. That uh, there's, there's the conservative belief is that there's certain things that a person could do that are so severely serious 
that it warrants giving up your life for because, you know, you just don't deserve it anymore. And Chazal were very uncomfortable with that. So that's, a, you know, an example of a conservative value in the Torah. Uh, you know, I think other aspects about sexual morality, uh, the Torah is certainly got some real conservative values there. And in some cases, Chazal, you know, come in. So why is it that we often have a Torah Shaval with a Torah Shabbatav is that the Torah's values, whether liberal or conservative, often sometimes clash with our reality or how we want to live in this world. And Chazal, you know, particularly the work that they're doing in Torah Shaval is, to borrow the word from my share, is negotiating that. They're trying to figure out how these real values of the Torah can exist in a real world. Um, you know, rabbis were not comfortable putting somebody to death. I'm certainly not comfortable making the statement that God wants you to die. And therefore found every limitation that they could. And then if they did have to kill somebody, would find some other way around it that was separate from the way the Torah would actually prescribe it. The rabbis at the same time knew that the Torah valued, as we said in most of my initial part of the presentation, protecting borrowers but was faced with the reality that if they did that, people wouldn't lend anymore. So how do we balance that? And Chazal are constantly trying to literally negotiate between the Torah's values and the real world. And if you were to borrow, you know, from a little bit of outside, uh, you know, there's the famous painting uh, by Raphael of Plato and Aristotle, or Plato's pointing up and Aristotle's down, like, you know, is the key value what exists, you know, up in some ideal heavenly world, or is the values, you know, this is to Aristotle, what happens in the real world and here and now. And Chazal is saying, actually, it's a negotiation between the two, that we try and, you know, strive for the value that the Torah is reaching, and then realizing that we live in some type of reality. So politics, you know, as you say, politics is, you know, ultimately about people's uh, interest in balancing different people's interests. Uh, and it's the art of working with people to balance different interest groups and how that works. And we recognize that in that process, that negotiation is important, the politics are important, and we want to bring in the Torah's value that the Torah has a voice in that negotiation. Uh, but at the same time, we learn from Chazal that it's not just the Torah having a voice in that negotiation, but it's part of the negotiation. Now, there's certain red lines that the Torah will never let you violate and Chazal will never go across. But at the same time, we're trying to figure out is how you live the Torah's values uh, in this real world where there are things that push up uh, against the value. And sometimes those things that push up against the value are actually real positive goods. It's not necessarily always that it's like, you know, somebody who's just being selfish or greedy uh, or what have you, that there, you know, could be some other real competing positives and how we, you know, negotiate and balance between them. So I know, I know uh, Eddie wants to jump in, but, but just before him, I want to throw one other. If looking at American politics over recent history, however you want to call recent history, what's one good, what's one good example and one bad example? One case where like the polarization is so deep on an issue and it really need not be because you think negotiation actually would get somewhere. And what's an area where you think like it, something really was achieved with this approach? Um, that's actually probably, you know, I, I'd have to look, you know, back at, you know, good examples, but I often, uh, you know, I, you know, I jokingly, you know, sometimes refer to the, you know, the 19, and, you know, this is probably, you know, actually an interesting debate. I think part of the problem in American politics is that 
everything, you know, has become a moral debate and a moral argument. Uh, and in a certain sense, uh, it is. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King famously said, show me a, bu a budget is a moral document. You know, show me a budget and I'll show you, you know, what your priorities are. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and often a lot of what government is, it's about budget. You know, you're spending money on X instead of Y. And where does your money come from? How do you, you know, get your, your taxes in? And, you know, so imagine a debate about taxes, you know, let's say. And you can frame that and it's often framed in moral terms such as it is from the liberal argument, it is absolutely immoral that somebody refuses to pay their fair share. And the rich need to pay their fair share. I mean, that's President Biden's, you know, often go to, you know, stock phrase when it comes to taxes, paying your fair share. The other side of the argument on the conservative side, it is absolutely immoral for the government to come take my hard earned dollars and, you know, I worked for this money. Who is the government to come take it away? You earned it. You keep it. It's another moral argument. Moral arguments are great because they actually really great at motivating people. It gets emotions, passion. So imagine these two moral arguments. It is immoral for the rich not to pay their fair share. It is immoral for the government to come and take my money. So then you ask the liberal, and this is where the debate was, at least in the 90s, and probably actually is pretty where it is today. So you say to the liberal, where do you think the top income tax bracket should be for a rich person to be paying their fair share? Um, most liberal policymakers, it's about 39% is for the, for the top income bracket where they think it should be. Ask the conservative, where do you think, you know, obviously rich people are still going to pay taxes. Where do you think the rich should be paying, at least on the top income bracket, their taxes should be? The answer is 35%. So 4% between 35 and 39% is this great moral divide between paying your fair share and the government not taking your money. Maybe, you know, that's, you know, when you think about it, and, you know, when the actual, you know, where that divide is, maybe there's a compromise in there, maybe that, and then that's actually an issue of compromise as opposed to sometimes I like to look at negotiations, not just for compromise where each side gives a little bit, but, uh, you know, perhaps there's actually collaboration where you can actually find like real win-win situations, um, which, you know, can happen in negotiations. Um, and, um, you know, and that's actually a great example of, of posturing. I think some of the greatest disillusionment, disillusionment in politics is exactly that case that, oh, are conservatives really fighting for that cause if they only want to get it to 35? Are liberals really fighting for the poor if they only want to get it to 39? Right. That's a, a great case of like how actually the, the divide is fake. They use this this pretended divide to pretend like they're in totally different camps when actually uh, American politicians are actually relatively on the same page on almost everything. And yet the marketing is is this marketing of polarization. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, it, you know, then it becomes about my side winning and not. And, you know, remember, at one point, the top bracket in the United States after World War II, it was actually 90%, not 39%. Right. Uh, you, you could say the same thing about refugees. Like, most liberals don't want all refugees to come here, and most conservatives don't want none. When right. you look at the numbers they would agree on, how different are they really? And we make it sound like they hate them, they want them all. But actually, they, that's not true of either camp either, you know? Exactly. exactly. Uh, and and I think, and, and it doesn't mean that there isn't a divide. It's just sometimes the divide is right. just 
framed in these really stark terms and that bridging there, you know, but once you realize you, you sort of, sometimes it helps to take the morality out of the debate because then you can, you know, really maybe start to bridge, but actually the bridging actually happens the more you're willing to start listening to each other. Um, and, and that, and I think the listening to each other and doing this, you know, has to come from this sense there. It's actually just, you know, are we in this together? Are we in a community? Are we living as part of the same shared society? Um, and, you know, do I see that other person is across the table as part of my, you know, community? Uh, you know, we deal with this locally is, you know, you know, in a shul, is it just somebody who comes in a room and davens with me? Or is it somebody who's part of my community that I actually feel responsible for? Um, you know, somebody, if it, there's a difference between being in a minion, you know, which is, okay, it's a place I happen to daven at, and being in a community where you're really invested uh, in each other. Doesn't mean you don't have differences, but when you're invested in each other, then you're much more invested in actually working out those differences. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Uh, and, and keeping on with that notion, how do you suggest we get over the hurdles of even just the denial of conversation? I think that there's often hurdles that they're like, I would never speak to that person, you know, from both sides of that camp, you know, like a far left person would never talk to a far right person or, or even and it's getting to the point where the polarization is coming closer and closer to less and less of the extremes and and more of the centers where even then folks are like i'm i'm not going to speak to either this side so um how do you think we can get over those hurdles right i, th I think the you know i think the big piece of it is i think you mean, first of all we need to create the opportunities um and you know i think this is sort of the downside to moving many part of our lives online uh you know there was a what I found the great book that came out a few years ago was called The Vanishing Neighbor, uh, where the, the concept was that in the human brain, we have a space for only a certain number of actual real relationships that our brain can only handle. Like you can't, you know, keep track of, you know, some of us, including, you know, me and Rush Mouli have more than 5,000 friends on Facebook. No one can keep track of 5,000 people. Uh, it's too many. So often what we do is that we have, you know, concentric circles of relationships. We have the people who are the closest to us in our inner circle, which is our family and, you know, very close friends, you know, people really in our communities. There's a middle circle, which we'll come back to. And then there's sort of that outer circle, somebody that we just have a very transactional relationship with within, and in the online social media world, it's like an interaction online. You comment on the person's post, you do that. You have no clue what's going on in that person's life outside of you know, the Facebook comment thread that you've sometimes interacted with. And what we've done, uh, you know, particularly in the internet age, is that we've expanded the, outer, the number of people in our outer circle and something therefore had to give. We weren't gonna sacrifice our inner circle. Most of us still have very close relationship with our loved ones, our families. We still have very meaningful friendships. But the one that's been given was the middle circle. And who are the type of people in that middle circle? It's the cashier at the grocery store. It's your barber. And if you look at how people interact in society, it used to be sometimes you would get into a long conversation with the cashier in the grocery store. Now, often people don't anymore. Why? Because 
they just actually don't have the brain space for yet another relationship with that person because they have so many online relationships which are about you know the interests and the things that are online and they still have their close family so it's just the you know just let me just check out and get done but it was actually in that middle circle the cashier in the grocery store your barber where people would often interact with somebody who was different than them and that was actually because online we either are debating and looking to score points or we're interacting with people who agree with us that's the echo chamber but to have a some type of a meaningful interaction with somebody who perhaps thought differently than you it was actually in those inside your neighborly interactions that wasn't exactly your family and that sort of went uh you know by the wayside but you can maybe sometimes see that there are times when you put people in the same room and something happens um you know is uh you know they each try to downplay it in certain ways but you know even in politics on the house floor paul gosar was on video sitting next to aoc asking her a question during the speakership election a few weeks ago and if you remember for those that you know maybe missed the story paul gosar was the one who was removed from his committees by putting together this anime style video where he was seen killing aoc and here you see him sitting next to each other and they're having some kind of a real conversation and she was engaged in the conversation uh apparently he was asking her is there any chance that some democrats might come over to help kevin mccarthy get elected speaker no you would think from aoc's perspective this is the guy who made a video about killing her from his perspective this is like a woman that he apparently at least for political reasons in public you know thought was the exemplar of all evil who should be killed in a video game type of setting even if not literally and yet put him in the same room sit him on a bench next to each other and they start talking whatever the topic of conversation might be uh you know i once read that actually part of the reason that there's been the breakdown in politics was that representatives in washington and this actually started happening in the 90s you know transportation got cheaper and they were encouraged to spend more time in their district with their constituents you know so they would go into washington 2 3 days a week go to their committees vote on the things they would vote and then they would spend at least you know thursday to monday back in their districts so on the one hand it was good that they spent more time back in their districts on the other side is it meant that they were spending less time with each other you know so they weren't working out in the house gym uh you know and sometimes it was when you saw that colleague from the other aisle who was on the treadmill next to you built a relationship that you know doesn't exist anymore so i think we need to like find and it's often harder because we've now actually also situated ourselves where often people now live in communities where people share your values it used to be you just went to a nice community you would live in a city it didn't matter what the demographics of that city were and there would always be people in a, any particular city whether it was a city a suburb or some rural area there would always be people around who didn't necessarily share now that we've actually segregated where we live based on our values it's harder to actually find people who don't agree with us um but finding those opportunities to just sit down and have a conversation i don't think it needs to be some scripted dialogue i think eventually people when you see the person on the other side is in their humanity is actually a person uh you know is coming this and motivated you know by values um of their own and where those came from and what their biography is and their story is uh then you see things uh, very differently um awesome 
Rub Jason, I'll, thank I'll you. Actually, great. I'll actually just share like one other, you know, great, story. Great. this coming this coming from Israel where I heard, you know, ah. dialogue between actually it was Israelis and Palestinians who were about 18, 19, you know, 20 years old. And there was an, I think it was an 18 year old Israeli was talking to a Palestinian and then 18 year old Israeli was, you know, about to go into the army and was, you know, choosing to go into some elite unit. Um, and the Israeli actually asked the Palestinian who they were introduced to, he says, you know, how do you feel about the fact that I'm an Israeli and I'm going into the army and I'm choosing to go into some elite infantry unit? And the Palestinian responded and says, I'm actually really happy about it. And Israeli's kind of, you know, confused. He says, he says, because he says, the next time that I interact with some soldier, it could be you. And I would rather interact with a soldier who's gotten to know me, who knows who I am, as opposed to some 18-year-old Israeli soldier who's never met a Palestinian before in their life. Uh, and, you know, so if I'm going to deal with elite soldiers, I'd rather it be somebody who's met me. Oh, I can leave Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Rob Jason, this has been so rich. It's not the typical social justice talk. Um, it is one that helps us to break through uh, broken paradigms and ones helps us be more creative. And yes, sometimes work harder rather than just be lazy. And I love that you were we were together in that room in the Robushkin negotiation. Um, and you were a key partner in that in thinking about doing that um and in, and in how it was done and i've always admired you for that and much more so thank you for this uh, this brilliant talk and framing it in torah um and helping us heal divides and and achieve real justice that's balanced and nuanced thank you yes, thank you for the opportunity really appreciate it thank you friends we hope you'll continue to learn with us at early tzedek in our coming programs in the coming over the coming weeks have a great day